When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm joined once again by my friend Chris Williams. Now, Chris, I'm going to spring a little bit of a pop quiz on you here right out of the gate. Can, can you do an Irish accent, number one? And number two, if so, will you demonstrate it for us? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. I, I think I'm Irish, so I should have that somewhere in me. So let's go ahead and see here. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to talk about Belfast. It's it's just going to be really great to talk about this movie. I don't know if that's uh, technically Irish or if I'm Scottish or European, but, uh, you know, without going into a whole uh, Lucky Charms rant, I think that's what I got. Uh, you know what? That's that's good enough for me. I am, I am not even going to attempt it. I, you know, I've... I am, like, Irish-German on my mom's side. I should be able to do an Irish accent, but mine kinds just tend to mutate all over the place. So we're just going to leave that to the side. Listeners, we are going to be talking about a brand new film set in Ireland. It's Kenneth Branagh's latest. It's getting a lot of awards buzz. It's titled Belfast. And Chris and I are going to talk about it on episode 313 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 313 of Seeing and Believing. 313, these episodes keep coming, and they're brought to you in part by our faithful Patreon supporters. If you uh, haven't been listening to the show that long, I haven't been plugging it in the last couple of episodes, but I just need to throw a plug out there for that this week because it really is something that helps us keep the lights on, and we very much appreciate all of our supporters. You can find that uh, Patreon page if you're interested in learning more about that at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. You can check out all the different reward tiers. There's some pretty good stuff on there. Um, and uh, yeah, there's even a bonus video with uh, me and the erstwhile co-host Wade. Uh, long may he uh, reign in our memories. But with that out of the way, we are going to turn to the business at hand, which is reviewing the new film Belfast. Like I, like you heard in the cold open, I'm joined by Chris Williams. Uh, if you were listening during our last night in Soho episode, then you already know that Chris is a Detroit-based film critic, a writer of the newsletter Criticisms, and co-host of the film podcast We're Watching Here. Chris, welcome back to the show, and thanks once again for indulging me with that bit of business about the accent. Oh, my wife will be very happy when she hears that. She's been telling me to uh, accept my Irish heritage a little bit more, and I, I can point to her and say it's in my blood, and uh, I got to show it off to everyone. Uh, very happy to be here again. This is your 313th episode, and Detroit is, of course, the 313, so I, I think it's just kind of fate that uh, oh. that I'm here. That's the area code that was uh, 
made famous in Eight Mile. Um, so I, I think it's just fate that I should be here today. Amazing. Uh, I mean, I meant to do that. That was entirely <laughs> <laughs> intentional. Oh, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with you about this film, Chris. Uh, Belfast is the uh, humorous, tender, and intensely personal story of one boy's childhood during the tumult of the late 1960s in Belfast, Northern Ireland, the city of director Kenneth Branagh's birth. It's billed as a movie straight from Branagh's own experience. A nine-year-old boy named Buddy must chart a path towards adulthood through a world that has suddenly turned upside down. His stable and loving community and everything he thought he understood about life is changed forever, but laughter, music, and the formative magic of the movies remain. Now, this film has quite a cast. In addition to Jude Hill's performance as Buddy, it features the great Kieran Hines and Judy Dench as Buddy's grandparents, as well as Katrina Balfe and Jamie Dornan as the parents struggling to build a life for Buddy amid the economic upheaval and violence of the world around them. So, Chris, obviously, this film is trying to recreate not just place right but an experience kenneth Branagh's own experience and the performances are a big part of that as is the black and white on location cinematography that we see throughout the film so my question for you to get us started on this is do you think that Branagh succeeds at his goal at bringing the audience into what is not just a story for him but a memory as well I think, yeah, I think that's actually what he's most successful at with this. Um, this is a movie that it, it's very charming and very enjoyable. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that you feel like you are in the middle of a place that he remembers very well. There's a personal touch to this movie. Um, it, it's not just the neighborhood that Buddy grows up in, you know, where it, it is very real. You know the neighbors. You see them passing each other. They have these relationships and these backgrounds. But you also get a hint of the family dynamics as Buddy watches his grandparents talk about their long life together. You get a feeling of the general sense of, you know, unrest that's coming to take over the neighborhood, but also these very sweet moments of growing up and having his first crush of, you know, getting roped into a local gang and then just punctuated also with with the pop culture that Buddy is becoming enamored with and, and the way Branagh plays with color to, to bring that to life. I, I think he does a very good job evoking a memory, evoking a place. I, I think even better than he does evoking the characters sometimes. I think the acting in this is phenomenal, um, but what I really left with was a sense of this feels like a lived-in, very personal movie, and I got to share that for an hour and a half. It's definitely a film that uh, is, I think, going to get a lot of love and attention from audiences and, and awards bodies uh, when the time comes, because it does like you say, tap into a lot of those aspects of growing up that are pretty universal regardless of where you grew up. I mean, you don't have to have uh, grown up in an extremely colorful or uh, or tumultuous neighborhood to know what it's like to have that first crush, to know what it's like to kind of be uh, pressure, peer pressured into things that you know you shouldn't, um, what it's like to be sitting on the stairs, you know, listening in on your parents as they have 
very grown-up discussions that you only half understand. These are all experiences that a, a lot of people have had and can identify with. And I think that Branna, you know, he does do a pretty good job of of bringing those uh, into the into the film in a way that's accessible to people uh, who you know, obviously may not share his background, but share in these, in these universal touchstones. And I think in some ways he also brings a, an interesting visual language to some parts of the scene setting that aren't just simply, you know, like plunking camera down in a Northern Irish neighborhood and just shooting it and kind of letting that do the heavy lifting. I think that he does maybe lean on the on location shooting a little bit, but he also finds these shots of um the overcast sky uh, over belfast mm-hmm. you know ireland being a famously rainy place that is obviously true to the location but also evokes this sense of you know there's this bustling city below and then there's just this looming threat overhead of of something of, of various things of you know economic uh decline of uh sectarian violence all of this stuff is is in the air as as symbolized by those clouds and i found that the times when he uh kind of points his camera upward at those images to i I found that to be where the film was most effective that's interesting i had not thought of that but you're absolutely right um just the sense of place there is so important this this kind of little cul-de-sac that uh that buddy lives in where it's these houses very close together and you know he's living you know right right next to his neighbors as one does but your relationship with your neighbors is such a huge part of this this story that that's being told where neighbors are riding against neighbors and there's this idea that there's this community that's always helped each other out and they're right there um and now they're attacking each other uh visually the thing i i really that stood out to me as i as i watched it was um there are so many shots of Adults having conversations and Buddy listening at a window or Buddy listening around a corner. And I mean, that happens several times. His parents are talking about their money woes and they're talking about, you know, whether they should stay or whether they should go. And his grandparents are talking about just the years they've had together. And we're always reminded that these conversations have an audience. And it, it, it I'm at the point right now, I have a, uh, 10-year-old and a 6-year-old and I'm I'm very aware that there is no conversation I have with my wife that is private. Um th- there are always two <laughs> little ears listening. And this is a story about a little boy who the world he's living in is becoming so much more complex, so much more confusing, and how is he going to navigate that? He's going to learn what to do by paying attention to the adults and the people in his path, um, the people in his community, the people in his family. And I think that's where I found it most effective is Brana leaning on that to showcase how Buddy's going to grow, how he's going to make his decisions about the man he's going to eventually become. It's from watching the people around him. Yeah, and the it help certainly helps that the actors that Branna has gotten to play these these adult family members are just such heavy hitters. I mean, I love Kieran Hines. I think he's mm-hmm. just a tremendous actor and weirdly, I mean, 
you often hear what a good actor is, but I, I do feel like he just doesn't get the attention maybe he deserves because I think he's he's not just a good actor. He's a great actor, and he's just so wonderful in this film as the the grandfather. Just he's got this this gentleness to him, but he's I mean, there's I don't know know how else to describe him other than grandfatherly, which is you know, hits the notes that is instantly recognizable to anyone who has ever had a grandparent that they love deeply. He just, he, he nails that, that combination so well. I also think that Katrina Balfe, who I haven't really seen in a whole lot of other stuff. I know she's in the, the television series Outlander. I haven't seen that. And she had a, a small supporting role in Ford versus Ferrari, which she was fine in, but it was kind of a thankless role. But she kind of blew me away in this in this film with mm-hmm. a couple of of speeches she gives where she she articulates how her how how torn she is between wanting to protect her family from the the spiraling violence that's you know come unfolding around them with her her ties to her home and and just not knowing if they move to England even though it'll be safer there are they going to lose something completely? Is it going to be, is uprooting the family like that going to be something that they can really cope with? And I think in, in a lot of ways it's, it's a, it's a tension that I'm not really sure is, is fully landed in the writing. I watching the film, there there are times when it wasn't fully made clear to me just in, in terms of the way Branagh was, was framing the conflict that it was fully, understandable to me, I guess it, mm-hmm. just the violence was so immediate and the ties to the, to the, the local home was not maybe as strong. So it, it seemed very obvious, like, no, get your family out of there. But then in these speeches, Katrina Balfe really makes it clear that, uh, just the, the depth of emotion, I guess that a person can build up with a home, even if it is, you know, in objective ways very dangerous yeah I, and i think i i think roth and uh heinz are both I, I i echo that they're both fantastic in this um and i think you're right i think there's a lot that isn't on the page when it comes to the characters in this movie we don't get a ton of detail sketched in about them and i think the actors do a lot of the heavy lifting um, one thing that i found that both kieran heinz and uh katrina belf did very well is they both have scenes where they have to quietly react to something. Um, they, and, and the way they, they pull it off is very impressive. Um, Kieran Hines, there's, there's maybe two or three places where Buddy is giving him some piece of information, like maybe they're going to move or his parents are considering this. And he has to convey um, the grandfather's emotions as being very supportive and happy for his grandson and doing what's best for his grandson. But even in then you can see how he's processing that thought that, you know, his, his family is about to shift his, his grandson might move away. His there, there's going to be a history of this family that doesn't include him. And he reacts in a way that you can see that emotion behind his eyes. You can see him processing that, but he's keeping a facade up to protect Buddy as well, to be strong in front of him. And it's very powerful that he can land that without really resorting to anything over the top or overly emotional. It's it's a very 
well-played performance. And he's also just very charming in his scenes with Judy Dench. Um, <laughs> just as they're sitting there talking and share, you get this sense of this decades-long marriage and the people they were before old age kind of took over and the hopes and dreams they had. And it's a really tender romance. And, and, and I really love the scenes we got with them. Um, but then Ralph had had the same sequ or a similar sequence on a streetcar um, as her husband mm. is telling her about an um, you know an opportunity, and it could be a very good thing for their family, but it could also be something that requires a lot of sacrifice and hard decisions. And the camera just lingers on her face as she contemplates that, and she doesn't change much at all. But you see every thought running through her head in that moment and it is such a powerful performance she's she's fantastic in this and that's an example of i think brenna at his best as a director here is that he does trust her to to just carry that that moment completely on her shoulders there's there's no cutting away like you said mm -hmm. it's all in close-up and it's, you know, it's a stationary camera, unbroken shot. And it's just, it's very, very good. And in this moment of, of restraint that I think uh, speaks well of what this film is at its best, which is um, making, not, not relying on um, anything other than simply uh, an actor's face and uh, th that character's truth being well spoken i think that it's done very well i thought it was interesting while watching this film to compare it to something like uh, alfonso cuaron's roma which is also mm -hmm. based on uh the director's childhood experiences of course roma the the um child who is you know the stand-in for the director himself isn't you know, is, is a very ancillary character there. And I thought it was interesting. And I'm curious to get your thoughts about, about this, about whether that occurred to you, because watching this, I did feel a little bit like, um, Branagh's approach was, was adequate, but I didn't know by, by the end of the film, whether I really understood if Branna was was trying to evoke anything other than than simple recollection, I guess there's it, I, I think of Roma and how there's so much in the way that story is told that tells us not so much not just about the, the specific context of Mexico at that time, but also just uh, has a whole richness to it in in its view of characters that often go. Un, unnoticed, you know, the, the, mm. the hired help. A and I really appreciated that about Roma. And with this one, I mean, uh, Jude Hill is, is charming as buddy, but I didn't, I don't know that I found him as compelling a point of view character as Yulitsa Aparicio in, in Roma. And I, I think that might be something that I, I wish Brent had maybe tried to explore a little bit more is, you know, these are his recollections, but what do those recollections mean beyond being signifiers simply of events that that happened to him? And I'm not sure, at least for me, I was not sure that that question was answered in a fully satisfactory way. I, I think I agree with you on that. I, I was writing up a review for this, and I was wrestling with the fact that 
I, I really enjoyed the experience of watching this. I, I think as soon as I was done, I went to Facebook and I commented, this is a lovely movie. And it is. And it's a very charming and funny and often very touching movie. But it does feel like that's about it, right? It, it's a good film experience. It's an enjoyable experience. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who love it. Roma is a very detailed movie. It's very... Uh, there, like you said, there's a lot that's going on. There are so many levels to the story that Quaran's telling there. Even though on the surface, like these are very similar stories. They're about growing up. They're about you know children who would go on to become filmmakers uh, in some way. I mean, I think I think Belfast is a lot more lightly autobiographical than Roma is. Um, from what I've read, this is kind of it's his remembrances, but it's not Brana's story, and that might be. The missing thing there is I don't think he dials into much specific here. He keeps a lot of things very broad. Um, for instance, there's a whole religious conflict, obviously, that's going on. And really, we don't get much talk about religion after the first 20 minutes of the movie. There's a uh, there's a church sequence that is, I thought, very funny and well-played, and it gives Buddy a question to ask. But there's really no more context about what's really going on in Ireland. Um, and maybe that just comes from the fact that he is telling this through a child's point of view. And the child is going to have a limited understanding of that context. Um, it, it does feel like there is something more at the edges of this movie or a little bit deeper if Brana was willing to dig for it. I think, like you suggested, he wanted to tell that story about growing up. And I think that's where it was. These memories he had, this this place he grew up in that he had to leave. And it, it doesn't leave the memories. It doesn't go deeper than that. And I, I, I don't know the right way to explain that, but it, it feels like there is a deeper movie that this movie isn't interested in being. It is a little curious to me that for a movie that's all about uh, sectarian violence between Catholics and Protestants, you know, and and explicitly religious conflict. That there isn't more about religion in this movie. There's uh, a line towards the end of the film where Jamie Dornan, you know, the the father, you know, kneels before uh, Buddy, and he he says, you know, if it doesn't matter if you know, somebody is, is a Buddhist or uh, a Baptist or, you know, it, whatever religion they will be welcome in our home. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very nice sentiment. It's obviously one that, you know, pretty much anyone should be able to sign, sign, sign off on is, you know, regardless of your religion, you should still, the, the gift of, of common human feeling and compassion should always be something that, that holds true regardless of, of differences in, in personal beliefs. And that's, that's a nice sentiment. It did ring to me a little bit like a little, I don't want to say it hollow, but I was disappointed that in a film that was about a, a religious conflict like this, not just a religious conflict, but a conflict between different sects of Christianity that the implications of that weren't really delved into more about, you know, why, you know, what the roots of that conflict are, what the differences are between Catholics and Protestants beyond the fact that, you know, Catholics have a little bit more of a high church, you know, thing going on with their worship. It's, it felt underexplored to me. And I think 
I, I wonder if that might have been an area where maybe some of this deeper exploration that we've been talking about could have happened where, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be exactly the sort of movie that Roma was just in it, the, the texture of it, but something seems like it was, it was left on the table that didn't necessarily have to be, I guess. Yeah, I'd agree because I, I kept leaving, you know, when I left, I kept coming back to the idea. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about the troubles before this movie. It's not something I've, I've studied a lot, but uh, what really kind of stuck in my brain as I was thinking about this movie was, you know, it's, it's really fascinating that you have two sects of Christianity, a religion that teaches you love your neighbor, and the whole thing that's going on in this movie are neighbors trying to hurt their neighbors. And the movie doesn't really deal with that. In fact, the family is very much just, we only go to church to appease grandma and grandpa, and it, it seems to kind of just not be interested in religion, which maybe that's how Brana is. Maybe that's the way he was raised, and he he doesn't want to delve into that, and that's that's totally fair. I just, I think it loses some of the, uh, like you said, the texture that could really help to ground the movie a little bit. Some of it feels very rose-colored glasses, looking back. Um, there are scenes that are harrowing here, but there's also a large climax of the movie that involves um, you know, a looting of a grocery store and an armed confrontation. And the way that's played off is almost as if it, 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 like a comedic, uh, you know, rah-rah <laughs> scene where the family, you know, comes together to to take down the neighborhood bad guy. And that felt a little off to me because it felt at times like it was a very safe way of viewing something that was not safe and sanitized and tore apart a nation for decades. Yeah, that that episode, I think, is it's it's a misstep in in a lot of ways. I think it, it, it's the way it's filmed is a little bit weird, like the 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 the, the resolution where, you know, it's essentially somebody brings a rock to a gunfight. Yeah. And the the rock ends up winning. It's just a little bit unclear how that even happened in terms of logistics and, and physical space but even beyond that the the way it concludes with the the villain sort of being carted off he's like i'll get you next time you know <laughs> and it's and, and then you never see him again which it, it i guess it just seems like a, a missed opportunity because that a character like that or or uh, a plot like that does present an opportunity for for Branagh, even if he was brought up kind of not buying into the the sectarian tensions that defined the troubles there were lots of people that did and a character like that kind of presents an opportunity to delve into well what what causes somebody to do this beyond just kind of like wanting to be the big man you know mm -hmm. like wanting to be the leader of a gang like you know lots of people might desire that but not everybody out and you know burns down uh grocery stores and whips up neighbors into a frenzy to attack other neighbors so what's the difference there and i guess that's a question that the film never really answers and doesn't even really seem like it it wants to answer and what's kind of frustrating about that is we are told earlier on that the kids in this family go to church to appease the grandparents well 
from what I can recall, I don't remember the grandparents discussing religion much at all through the movie. And that would be an interesting place to put it is what do they think about what's going on? And they have their own, you know, trials that are going on throughout the movie. But it, it just felt weird to start it, you know, where you know, with these questions of religion and why do we go to church? Why don't we go to church? And then this whole religious conflict that's consuming a neighborhood. And then it just kind of abandons it. And it, it's it's basically wallpaper near the end. It's it's setting up the conflict but that's not anything the main character has to deal with aside from the fact that it might cause him to have to leave his home. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the answer to, to this is, is that, or that, yeah, this is a story being told through the eyes of a child. So Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't necessarily make sense for it to grapple with, with all that. And I think that that, that's a fair, that would be a fair defense. This is, told through the eyes of a nine-year-old. It's not necessarily trying to be about all these bigger things. Um, and I think, you know, that that can kind of be be its own kind of reward. Like, it's it's nice to watch a, a nice movie where, you know, family matters and they, they love each other and, you know, nothing horribly scarry happens. Like, that. it's kind of nice to see those movies sometimes as well. Um, uh, I guess it, it's... Maybe just Kenneth Branagh's misfortune that there's a movie called Roma out there that's mm-hmm. just such a an, an achievement that other movies sometimes pale a little bit in comparison. And, and I will say, I think this, you know, as a thinking, you know, as a man with a nine year old at home, um, you know, the most important thing in my son's life right now is what's going on in our family. Like, there's obviously huge world shattering things going on in our world right now that he's kind of vaguely aware of. But what he is fascinated about, what he really pays attention to, is what's going on between my wife and I, or what's going on with his sister or his neighbors. And so I guess it does make sense that Buddy would be drawn more to uh, what's going on in his house. What's Why are his parents kind of tense all the time? Um, and I think those scenes are really solid, mainly because you do have this cast of four great actors. Uh, we haven't even mentioned Judy Dench, who is just, I, I don't want to use the word adorable, but it's there. Like, she is adorable in this movie to watch, um, and heartbreaking when she needs to be. And uh, Jamie Dornan, who I think does a really solid job taking a character who isn't, you know, he he's not a perfect father. He has his vices, but you can see him trying. And you can also see how much he does love his wife. Uh, there's a there's a scene near the end um, involving him and her dancing that is really one of my favorite scenes of the year and probably Danny, Jamie Dornan's second best musical moment of the year, uh, following, of course, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Um, <laughs> but, but he's really good in this um, because... The father is a bit of a complex guy. He's he's working this job that has him in London all the time. Um, so he's not home to help raise his kids all the time. You get a sense of this guilt he feels toward that and also suggestions that he may be more responsible than he wants to let on for the family's financial troubles. Um, and, and I think Dornan does a good job of not making him heavy-handed or overly sweet. Uh, he, he just walks a really fine line of of creating a real lived-in character there. 
Yeah, I I like I mean we we come we keep coming back to the cast and I think that the cast is is the saving grace of this movie. It's mm-hmm. it, they're they're pretty good uh, across the board. Well, listeners, that is our review of Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. It is currently playing in theaters pretty much everywhere or soon will be once uh, the award season buzz starts ramping up. I think it's pretty clear this is going to get some attention in that category. If you've had a chance to see Belfast and have thoughts on it or thoughts on what Chris and I have talked about today, please let us know. We always love hearing from you. You can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or you can always tweet us on the Twitters at cbelievepod. But we are reaching the end of the show now, Chris. And of course, this is the part where we uh, share a recommendation from the world of television or film that we think our listeners should check out if they have the, the time and the inclination. So, what is your recommendation for them this week? Yeah, um, it, it's funny you ask that because immediately after I was done seeing Belfast, I had a free Saturday. Um, I walked across the hall. I paid my ticket, um, but I walked across the hall and I saw Pablo Lorraine's Spencer, um, which is a one of my favorite movies of the year. And which shocks me. Uh, this is this movie about Princess Diana, and I am someone who has never been interested in the life of the royals. I didn't pay much attention to Princess Diana when I when she was alive. Um, it's always been something that's a little too starchy for me. Um, my wife is definitely more of a, of a fan of royalty than I am, but uh, I was curious about this. And so I went to go see it, and it's a really fantastic movie. It observes Princess Diana during a three-day Christmas weekend um, where she is with the royal family at their uh, Sandringham estate, which is right across the, uh, the field from where she grew up. And it's near the end of her marriage. Uh, information is coming out about Prince Charles's affairs. Um, and, and she's just at this state where she is anxious and suspicious and awkward all the time and it kind of just follows her during these three days as she feels this this suffocation of the expectations of being royalty and what that means to her as a person and Kristen Stewart plays Diana and she is fantastic um it's my favorite performance of the year she just captures this person who is so awkward because you can just feel the the eyes of the world on her and how it's draining her identity. And she plays someone who is just not comfortable in her skin. She can't be herself in public. She can't be herself in private. She only has the moments where she's with her sons. Um, it's a really fantastic performance. The setting is so great here, taking place at this large estate where there are portraits of royalty on the wall. So you get this sense of history just crushing down and suffocating Diana and it's a movie that gets kind of uh, surreal at times there's some dream sequences there's some ghost sequences it really helps get into her mindset Um, and then there's just there's fantastic performances from uh, Timothy Spall Sally Hawkins and Sean Harris as well Um, yeah this is a movie that it it, it's fantastic it's a psychological drama that really gets to the head of someone who is a larger than life figure and I really recommend it that, yeah, I've heard many good things about Spencer. I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, have, 
this isn't the first time that uh, this director has made a movie about a larger than life uh, female figure. He also, uh, back in 2016, made a biopic about uh, Jacqueline Kennedy in the immediate aftermath of the assassination of JFK. Was it, have, Had you seen that? Like, how does this uh, compare to, to that film? I unfortunately have not seen Jackie. It, it's one of those movies I got a screener for, and it kind of got pushed to the back of the pile and never got around to in the end of the year rush. But uh, I will definitely be checking it out because I really enjoyed Spencer. I'd be interested to to hear your thoughts and just, you know, how similar they are and, and, and where they're different. But yeah, that's a, that's a good recommendation. Spencer, uh, looking forward to catching up with that myself. My recommendation for this week is a 1999 film directed by Joe Johnston. Uh, I'm, I, I like Joe Johnston a lot. I think that he's, uh, really good with popcorn cinema. He he made uh, a really good Captain America movie. He made The Rocketeer, which I think is, you know, if you catch me on the right day, I might say is the best superhero <laughs> film uh, I've seen. It's it's a lot of fun in any case. But he also is very adept at dramas as well. And my recommendation is his 1999 film, October Sky. This is uh, the film that is notable for a lot of reasons. It uh, one of which is that it has Jake Gyllenhaal's breakout performance. Uh, as far as I know, not too many people knew who he was before October Sky. And after October Sky, they knew who he was, or at least I did. I, I think he gives an incredible performance. It's based on the true story of uh, Homer Hickam, this uh, boy who's growing up in West Virginia coal country, um, and he has dreams of uh, when he looks up in the sky and he sees Sputnik. Uh, going across the sky af- soon after its its launch, he begins to dream of becoming a, a rocket scientist himself and building rockets that go into space. And the film is all about the you know the difficulties obviously he encounters in pursuing that dream, but also the tensions that it causes uh, between him and the the people around him, most specifically his father, who's uh, a manager at this, at this coal mine nearby. And it's just, it's a, it's a really good movie for a lot of reasons. I picked it for my recommendation because it also in a way is a coming, a coming of age story. Uh, not, not a whole lot like Belfast, but is definitely in the same genre. And I also just think it's, it's a wonderful portrait of, of uh familial dynamics and just you know the the tensions and the the bonds that can form over that uh it has a stacked cast in distance to Gyllenhaal it's got Chris Cooper and Laura Dern and I think it's got just a lovely lovely score by Mark Isham and the score might be the the reason one of the big reasons that I fell in love with it in the first place so uh yeah if you haven't seen October Sky I definitely recommend checking it out it's a really good film and if you're uh, somebody who has a family, it's a good family film too. PG rated, you know, just a, a really, really nice film all, all together. That is a good one. I have not seen that in, in years, but October Sky is fantastic. And I echo everything you said about Joe Johnston. Um, we showed my son The Rocketeer about a year ago, and he loved it. I loved it. Uh, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. But uh, also the other one not to sleep on is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids which I showed my kids over the summer. They went nuts for, and I've been preaching for like the last six months. 
it's the movie that all the kids my age think Goonies actually is. It's uh, it, it's the really good family adventure without all the screaming. <laughs> I uh, you know, I don't, I didn't know that Joe Johnston directed Honey Shark the Kids. That's amazing. Um, I haven't seen it since I was a little kid, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll. It's time for me to do a reevaluation of it. Hopefully, it holds up a little bit better than other other early 80s movies of of that sort here's it, you know fingers crossed it's quite good yeah well uh maybe that can be a, a bonus recommendation for our listeners but we have reached the end of the show thanks again chris for coming on and talking with me about belfast and about your recommendations uh now we we mentioned earlier that you are the co-host of a of your own podcast uh, it's titled We're Watching Here, and uh, you had quite a jam-packed episode recently. You reviewed three movies on on that episode, and I, I hear that you have a, a big project upcoming. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so my co-host Perry and I have been doing it. We've been doing a series throughout the summer. Um, about movies from the 70s. So we started, you know, we did the Godfather trilogy. We did Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Chinatown, Badlands. And just offline, we started talking, and he was like, oh, it'd be really great to get one of the Altmans in there. What's your favorite Altman? And I had to confess, I have, I don't think I've seen a Robert Altman film. It's a huge blind spot for me. Uh, so Perry, you know, because he loves a challenge, uh, got out his notepad and said, we are going to do a Robert Altman miniseries. And so we are going to start this week, actually. Um, we're going to start going through the films of Robert Altman. It's probably going to take us a few months. We're going to zig and zag out with probably a few new releases and stuff, too. But we're going to start with MASH, and then we're going to go hit the high points of his uh, filmography. And yeah, Altman's someone I've been knowing I need to get around to for a long time. And I just have not done it, and this was a great excuse to do it. And I'm excited to talk about MASH with him, um, and I'm really excited to eventually get around to movies like Nashville and The Player and maybe even Popeye. So it should be a fun series. <laughs> you know, one of the underrated benefits of having a podcast that I feel like I don't see talked about all that often is that thing that you just mentioned, the giving you an excuse to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think that... You know, when when Wade and I did our, uh, you know, our, our summer of Stan, where we just went and we we watched through a whole bunch of Stanley Kubrick films, or you know, when we just make sure to keep up with new releases, it kind of just gives you a little excuse to go like, you know what, I'm just going to spend a lot of my time going through these things and and doing something that I've meant to be doing for a long time. So that sounds really great. I'm I'm glad that you're. Uh, getting the chance to do that. And I don't know, I'll be following along with great interest to see what, what you guys say. Oh, thanks. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. Well, listeners, that is the end of our episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClinton. I was joined this week by Chris Williams, and I'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.